If you don't have a Bible with you or a device with the app on it, you can turn in your bulletin because we've got the text there in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, there are a bunch on that back table. I want to give that to you. That's our gift because uh, we think it's important for you to have it, especially during this time because if I'm making all this up, then we're all wasting our time, right? So uh, having it in front of you is going to help. So we are halfway through this series on Jonah, and, and if I, I'm hoping, at least, that if you've been here, that this, this book's really messed with you. And I mean that in a good way, because that's, that's what this book in particular is supposed to do. It's supposed to mess with us, because you see, in a lot of the Bible, uh, the prophet of God is kind of presented as the hero, right? He's the hero standing against the rising tide of unbelief in some way, shape, or form. Not Jonah. Jonah's no hero, right? Uh, Jonah, as we saw last week, is so angry at God for asking him to share his heart for his enemies that death was a viable option for him to obedience. And as we left, uh, Jonah, he was being swallowed by a fish, something you generally don't come back from, but the story continues. So, uh, what we would expect at this point Jonah has been thrown into the raging sea. He's been swallowed by a fish. If the story's continuing, then of course, what we're going to see out of Jonah is a, all right, you're right, you're right, I blew it. Okay, all right, I'm sorry. You know what, I tried to run from you, I couldn't, I'm sorry. Um, You know, forgive me, right? That's what we'd expect. It's not what we're going to get. Because we expect that, we are in fact going to see two unexpected reactions. One from Jonah and one from God. So if you'd stand in honor of God's word, that's what we do here before the sermon. I'm going to be reading um, all of chapter 2, but don't freak out. It's not that long. Okay? This is God's word given for our flourishing. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me, and all your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deeps surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray? Father, as we come... Uh, all of us need the same thing. Christian or not, uh, long-time Christian, new Christian, um, strong in faith today, weak in faith, struggling, hanging on to the gospel with our fingernails. No matter where we are, we need you to come and to open our hearts because we can't do that ourselves. We need you to speak your word to us because we can't do that. I certainly can't do that. So, Lord, we ask that you would come and you would do that out of your grace, out of your love for us. That you would reveal your good heart to us today. Let Jesus and everything he said come to the fore. And the one who, fall, uh, one who preaches fall to the wayside because you, Jesus, alone hold the words of eternal life. 
And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So how do you respond when your failures are exposed? Now notice, I didn't say if. Because there ain't a person alive who can get away with any part of their life without having their failures exposed. What do you do when they're exposed is the question. This is an important question, not just for us spiritually, right? So if you're a Christian, you've been a Christian a long time, you're thinking, okay, yeah, I get that, blah, 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 how I relate with God. Yes, yes, true. However, this also engages with us in how we relate with others, See, how you deal with others seeing your failures has a ton to do, not just with how you relate to God, but with everyone. If I might be so bold, and I'll warn you, I'm about to go from preaching to meddling. If you don't know what to do with your failures, if you cover them up, hide them, excuse them, play the victim, that may be the reason that relationships are hard for you. I know you think it's everybody else. I know you do. I know you think people just don't like me and people are just critiquey and blah, blah, blah. It may be that instead. See, this is the thing about Christianity. It doesn't just deal with our relationship with God. It actually helps us live life. There's a pastor in Atlanta, a fairly famous pastor in Atlanta, who says it this way. He says that Christianity, um, Christianity makes life better for you, and it actually makes you better at living life. Uh, you can go a little too far with that, but I think in terms of this, it makes tons of sense. The Bible talks about how to deal with our failures in terms of a churchy word called Repentance. Repentance. But here's the crazy thing. Repentance is not what we see from Jonah. Jonah has been totally exposed. And like many times in the Bible, what, what the way in which the Bible uh, teaches us, shapes us, in this case, is by showing us what not to do. <laughs> what not to do. Okay, So we're going to look at this in two ways today. There's an outline in your bulletin. If you're a note taker, that's there for you. Or, or just to follow along, we're going to look at shifty prayers and turning prayers. Okay, Shifty prayers and turning prayers. And that's about it. So let's start with shifty prayers. Now, if you've been with us the last two weeks, you probably noticed something happened in this passage. right? If you, have a, if, you, if you have your own Bible and you're looking at it, you definitely notice it. Because we went from just normal paragraphs, all of a sudden everything's indented and weird. This is a, this is a, a prayer, obviously, but not all prayers in the Bible are, are written like that. This is in particular a psalm, right? It's 150 of those in the middle of your Bible. A psalm. Now, what we would expect in terms of a psalm from Jonah would, of course, be a psalm of repentance, right? Psalm 51, Psalm 130. Like these things that like, oh, I, you know, I'm, I've, I've blown it. God, I have no excuse, blah, blah, right? What we get, though, is not a psalm of repentance. Scholars will tell you that what we're given is a psalm of thanksgiving. That's interesting. Jonah is giving thanks. Now, that should strike us funny if we're remembering what has come before this, right? Because Jonah is, if you'll remember, we, we, we describe him this way, that Jonah is God's prophet, who's running from God's call and ultimately from God's presence. He's he's continually going further and further down, away from God relationally, until finally he's decided, he decided when his betrayal of God was exposed, to have other people throw him into a hurricane, into the water where he knew he was not going to live because that was better than returning to the Lord. You remember all that? 
Now look at how his prayer subtly shifts the story ever so slightly. Now, some of you, as I, as I say that, are probably like, dude, aren't you going to deal with the fish? Ah, no, not really. And, and the reason for that is because the, the text doesn't. The author doesn't. He doesn't seem to feel the need to explain this. Uh, and so when we go into like all these huge uh, like side tracks to try and explain, well, what kind of a fish was it? How did this happen? Was it a whale or was it a fish? How biologically does someone exist in the belly of... It was no less crazy in the 2nd century B.C. when this was written than it is today. It's not like people were doing, like, traveling around through fish all the time. It's like, hey, you know what, i got to get to Italy. Can I find a fish? I'm going to hitchhike and jump. Like, no, there are not tons of stories like this. This was crazy then, too. But the author doesn't seem to want to tell us a whole lot because the point isn't the fish. The point's the prophet. So I'll just say this. If God can create everything there is with his voice, speak it all into existence, uphold it all by the word of his power, not by inviolable laws, but by the word of his power. If he can throw a storm onto the sea to disrupt Jonah's leaving and running from him, and at the same time when he's thrown overboard, dissipate that storm as soon as Jonah touches the water, I'm pretty sure he, if he wants to, can keep somebody alive in the belly of a fish. And I don't think the author seems to want us to delve too much more into that. If that's hard for you, I, under, I totally understand. I'm just trying, follow me on what we see in Jonah, okay? So, he begins to speak in verse 2. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. Distress? Is distress what we've seen from Jonah? Is that what's happening to him? Because distress seems to say, my circumstances are crazy, Right? So Jonah's circumstances are the problem? That's weird. Well, let's keep going. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the sea. Now, at this point, if you've been reading, you should be asking the question, are we talking about the same story? Because what I remember is not like the ship was rattling around because of the waves and Jonah's like, ooh, falling off a deadliest catch style into the water, right? Like that's not what Jonah is or has happened to him. What happened was Jonah turned to the sailors who were asking, what are we supposed to do? And he says, chuck me overboard. I'm done with God. Done. Chuck me overboard. Hmm. He's not done though. Look down at verse 4. Then I said... I am driven away from your sight. Driven away. Is that what happened? I know we all left like grammar class in ninth grade and we never wanted to go back. But you know that, that word driven, that's in the passive. As in something being done to the person who's speaking. Not something the one who's speaking is doing. Jonah's being driven away from God's presence. Because what I seem to remember is Jonah running away from God as fast as he could. I remember him going down and down over and over again and finally having the sailors throw him into the sea to get away from God, right? What we see in Jonah in these first few verses is classical blame shifting. Blame shifting. Jonah was exposed. The unbelieving sailors in the last passage saw it. They even looked at him and said, what is this that you have done? What have you done, Jonah? We're all going to die because of you. What have you done? Exposed. But Jonah isn't taking responsibility. He's shifting the blame from him 
to God. Did you see that? He's not in the midst of his sin. He's in the midst of distress. My circumstances are bad. He hasn't run away from God's presence. He's been driven from God's presence. I, I had to go. Like There was no choice. This passage sounds pious, right? But it's all just lies. It's just lies. It sounds religious, but it's just lies. But listen, let's not be too hard on old Jonah. Because you and I do this too. This isn't a Jonah problem. This is a human problem. And for some of us, it's pretty extreme. Right? Some of us in the room, that it's really extreme the way we do this. Because everything we do has a mitigating factor. Right? Everything we do. We do a lot of, I'm sorry, but. Which is another way of saying, this isn't really my fault. I know you're, you're upset. I'm sorry that you're upset. It's not my fault. Right? We're committed to not being at fault. We can say, I'm not perfect. But we have a really hard time figuring out what exactly we're not perfect at. I mean, I can't play, you know, Mozart on the piano. Oh, yeah, but what about, what about ethically? Like, we're, oh, well, I don't know. I mean, nobody's perfect. Well, what does that mean? I, hmm. I'd have to think about that. Right? If you profess to be a Christian, maybe you use the language we use, right? Everybody's broken. Everybody's a sinner. Everyone's in need of grace. But you really struggle finding one specific thing you need grace for, right? One specific way you've sinned against God or against others. Instead, everything simply happens to you or it happens around you. It's, it's my circumstances, it's the stress, it's, it's, uh, it's my health, it's, it's all of these things. It's the, you understood the family I grew up in, right? Others aren't quite as extreme, but we love to shift blame, right? Uh, we, we love to. We, we love the I'm sorry, but it doesn't happen all the time, but, but sometimes. I mean, for me, for me, I love, I love blaming things on my story, which is to, which is to say, uh, you know I, know, I know what I did was wrong, but if you understood my history, you'd understood why I did it, which is a very apparently self-aware way of saying, uh, yeah, I did that, but you really shouldn't be angry at my arrogance or my lack of love because of this mitigating factor, right? Listen, we've been doing this since the beginning. When we betrayed God in the beginning, Adam and Eve, when we turned from him, when we said, your heart's not good and I don't trust it and I'm going to find my own way, uh, the very first thing we did, there are two things that happened. We began hiding and we began blame shifting immediately, right? So you know the story, maybe you don't, but here it is in a nutshell. Uh, we turned away from God. Uh, humanity is now um, hiding in the garden. God starts walking in the cool of the day, because that's when he like, take his walks with Adam and Eve. And there, he's walking out in the garden, and he can't find them. So he's like, where are you? Which is silly, because God knows exactly where they are. He's, he can see things, right? I mean, he's God. But he's inviting them back to him. And they pop out uh, in, their, in their fig leaf underwear, and they're like, you know, he's... he's they, they tell him what happened. He's like, what, what have you done? It's funny. It sounds a lot similar to the way Jonah was spoken to. And then Adam says, what have I done? It was the woman. And she goes, what, did I, what have I done? It was the snake. The snake turned around. There's nobody there. So he's stuck, right? So that's all that he could do. Uh, we shift blame. 
It's what we've done since the beginning. And here's why. We shift blame because we know that we are guilty. But we are afraid that the guilt of our betrayal will be greater than the love of the one we've betrayed. Let me say that again. We believe that the guilt of our betrayal will be greater than the love of the one that we've betrayed. It looks like pride. I don't do anything wrong. It looks like pride. And it is. But what's driving it is terror. So Jonah shifts blame. It isn't his fault. It's God's. That's weird enough. But it's about to get weirder. Look at the second half of this passage. As we look at shifting hope. He talks about drowning. That's what it means when he's talking about weeds around his head and billows and going down to the gates. It just means I was on my way to death. I'm drowning. Right? And then in verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Now this is just amazing. Scholars will tell you, Old Testament scholars will tell you that structurally, verse 7 is the center of this prayer. Right? It, it, it functions in this way. There's this uh, funky thing that uh, is a literary form that happens in the Old Testament a lot called a chiasm. That is, is not important to know. But it points that this, this verse is the structural center of this. Why does that matter? It matters this. Because this is the center of Jonah's prayer. And at the center of Jonah's prayer is Jonah. Did you see that? He's basically saying, I got to my lowest. I was in trouble. And I remembered. Most of the time in these prayers of thanksgiving, what you get is you get the psalmist, the the writer saying, I got to my lowest and God remembered me. No, not for Jonah. I remembered God. I remembered. And when I remembered, things went better for me. I remembered you, Lord. It's a good thing I did, too, because I was going down. Thankfully, I figured it out. Get the idea? Jonah's not just shifting his blame. He's shifting his hope as well. Jonah's rescue is because of Jonah. And that's why this random thing or seemingly random thing, like if you're reading, verses 8 and 9 are completely random. Why does he start throwing shade randomly at at these unbelievers? Like, what does that have to do with what he's doing here, especially because the sailors that he just left weren't believers and they seem to get everything right while he got everything wrong. Why is he throwing shade all of a sudden? I mean, this is pride. It's pride, plain and simple. Jonah figured it out. Jonah prayed to the right God. And then Jonah says in verse 9, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Now, let me be clear on something. What Jonah is not saying is, okay, God, I get it. I'll go do what you told me to now. That's not what he's saying. Those words, uh, sacrifice and what I vowed I will pay, are worship terms. They're ceremonial terms. In other words, what Jonah is saying is, I'll get it right next time. I'll get it right next time. I will go do the religious duties that I know you really want. In other words, these two verses contrast idolatry, worshiping false gods, worshiping other gods, not with God's mercy, 
which would make sense in a psalm of thanksgiving, right? I'm thankful that God is merciful to me. They contrast it not with mercy, but with religion. They got it wrong, but I'm going to go get it right. I figured it out. Idolaters are stupid, but I will get my stuff together when I get out of this. Do you see that? The irony in all of this is that he then goes on to declare that salvation belongs to the Lord. In other words, it's his to dispense to whomever he wishes. Which is weird, because didn't Jonah just spend a whole chapter running from God because God said, go and proclaim this stuff to these people who hate me? What we're going to find out is he didn't do it because he was afraid God would rescue them. See... Jonah saying that salvation belongs to the Lord doesn't mean it's his that he can give it to whoever he wants. But that he gave it to Jonah because Jonah got it right. This rescue that Jonah experienced should have produced in him an appreciation for God's mercy. I I was running from him, abandoned him, doing everything but following him, and yet he did not judge me, he rescued me. should make mercy, right? Mercy. How amazing is God's love for me? But instead it leads him to talking about how smart he is and how foolish unbelievers are. Now, again, before we get too hard on Jonah, we need to understand that this is stuff that we do all the time. Right? Normally our first reaction to blowing it is reform, right? I knew I blew it. I'm just going to do better next time. Like, we we do that all the time. Um, And so, for some of us, since we all kind of assume that when we blow it, the goal is reformation, some of us are, are kind of lean in a way in which we are like all sail and no rudder. Like, the idea of self control, of self denial, is like. No comprendo. Like, what is that? That self-denial thing of which you speak. And so when we are met with, I should reform, we just kind of go, that's not possible. And we despair. Others of us, though, are pretty good at behavioral change. And so we try harder. And so all of this, though, is the perspective that gets confronted with its failure and eventually goes, okay, I get it, but can't we just move on? There's nothing I can do about that. Can you just stop being angry at me? What do you want me to do? What do do you want from me? What do you want from me? Can't change it. Can we just move on? There's no real acknowledgement of hurt. No real sorrow for what has happened. Just a desire to move on with the unspoken or possibly stated idea that I will do better in the future. We place our hope in us. I can do better, I can be better, I'll make it up to you. As if there's anything we can do to make up for a betrayal. This is where Jonah leaves us. But here's the beauty of this. God tells us exactly what he thinks of Jonah's prayer. Now I know that in our little children's Bibles, if you have kids, you know this is true. Maybe you remember your children's Bibles. When we get to this part of the story of Jonah, and Jonah's in every children's Bible because there's a fish that swallows the prophet. And that's weird, so we put that in the children's Bibles. And at every point in these, in these stories of Jonah, you get Jonah, he's on his knees, and he's got his hands folded, and he's praying on something that looks like a tongue, you know, and he's, he's, he's praying. 
And then in the very next page, he's walking on the beach. Or maybe you, you kind of see him walking down off of, the, off of the fish onto the beach. That is not what the story says. In fact, the story doesn't say that the fish spit Jonah out. Nor does it say it just kind of opened his mouth and turned his tongue into a set of steps and he just kind of walked down onto the beach. It says that God spoke to the fish and the fish vomited him out. Everywhere in the Old Testament, when something vomits, it is exactly what we think it should be. It is a sign of revulsion and rejection. So in the prophets, it talks about the land vomiting out the people. Why? Because their sin is made, is just, they are rejected because of their sin. Like it's just too much. They have betrayed God too much and he's, he's vomiting them out of the land. It is a rejection of that thing. God is so impressed with Jonah's prayer that he tells the fish to puke the dude on the shore. He is not impressed with Jonah's piety. Jonah still hasn't acknowledged what he did. He doesn't appear saddened by what his actions have done. Even though his actions put the lives of a bunch of sailors in danger. They almost died. He isn't seeking mercy and forgiveness. Jonah is the victim who's going to do better next time. Sadly, what I've just described in the life of Jonah is what many of our experiences are with Christians, uh, or maybe it's your experience of yourself, right? I would simply say at this point that what we are shown here is a foil, an antithesis to what the Bible calls repentance, which we're going to talk about, okay? We're going to talk about that right now. But as we talk about repentance, I want to make very clear That repentance, this big churchy word that I'm going to define here in a second, is relational. Repentance is relational because betrayal and sin is relational. Right? I know in our country we have this mindset that justice is blind and when we, when we betray something, we don't do restorative justice because restorative justice assumes that there's a person involved, but we don't, we don't, We don't break laws, or we don't break relationship with people, we break laws, right? And the law has to punish us, not a person, it's the law. And so we have this mindset that that's just kind of the way things are even with God. That our offenses are against some rule book or code of conduct. And if that were the case, then what we would need is reform, not repentance. In the Bible, however, and thus in Christianity, we betray persons, not principles, Okay? So that's got to undergird everything we're talking about. So what we're going to look at first is the core of repentance. And what I mean by core of repentance is the, the attitudes of the heart from which everything else springs. Okay, The attitudes of the heart. Now, the core of repentance begins first with a hatred of sin. But let me be clear. It's a hatred of sin, not a hatred of self. That is a very important distinction. Self-hatred is a form of shame. It says, I should be better. I should do better. And some of us in this room are great at self-hatred. Because every time we interact with someone, we leave a pile of should on the floor after we leave. Like, we, are, we coat everything with should. 
I should be better. I should be a better Christian. I should be a better husband, a better mother, a better, a better worker, a better friend. I should, I should, I should. When someone comes to us and say, they say to us, um, man, what you did hurt me? I think you sinned against me? We go, oh, you're right. I should be better than that. I'm terrible. How does anyone love someone like me? How do you put up with me? That's self-hatred. Sin-hatred says, I hate what I did to you. I hate what it's done to you. You see the difference? One is focused on self. The other is focused on what you've done to the other. See, many of us do respond to our failures through shame. I'm terrible. I'm terrible. I'm awful. How can anyone love someone like me? And it sounds pious, but what it subtly does is it diverts attention away from the one that we've wounded back onto us. It is a way for us to say, when we say I'm terrible, what we want is for someone else to say, oh, no, you're not. Right? I can't believe that you can love someone like me. I, I, do, lo- I do love you. I, I do love you. And what, what's happened? Well, we're not talking anymore about what that sin has done to them. Instead, we're talking about me. I love me some me. Let's talk more about me. What do you have to say about me? Like, we love me. It's a subtle pull to get someone to make you feel better. In its spiritual form, it's kind of self-atonement. God, see how much I hate myself? See how much I'm, I'm, I'm just despising me and, and all this stuff. You don't have to judge me because I'm so upset at myself. So the core begins with a hatred of sin instead of a hatred of self. But it continues with an apprehension of God's mercy in Jesus. In other words, we begin by hating what we've done. But we continue by seeing that God's, the work of Jesus is actually enough. More than enough for what we've done. You see, repentance can happen in Christianity because Christianity refuses to deny how bad what we do is. When we do that, let me be honest with you, if if you're here this morning and that's one of your things, you like to mitigate, you like to shift around blame, you don't like, don't don't you struggle with feeling like you matter to people? Do you know why you struggle with feeling like you matter? Because no one is ever allowed to be impacted by you. And if they can never be impacted by you, if, if, someone, if someone isn't hurt by what you've done, you know what that says? Listen to me. If a stranger walks into this room and they cuss me out, flip me the bird and walk out, you know what I think? Who was that? You know, that's what I think. If my wife does it? Oof. You know why? Because I love her. And if no one is ever impacted by what you do, You're just a stranger. You don't want to be a stranger. Christianity actually allows us to dig in. The reason why our sin matters is because of God's love for us. That's why it matters. His love for us is what makes that impact so great on him. So it doesn't deny the seriousness of what we've done, nor does it ask us to fix it. You see, Jonah refused to accept responsibility while he was in the belly of death. That's what he says, the belly of Sheol. That's what that is, the belly of death. He sat in the belly of death and he refused responsibility. But Jesus went into the belly of death 
to bear responsibility, not for what he did, but for what we did. That's why he went there. On the cross, Jesus bore the full weight of every betrayal that we've committed so that you and I don't have to. When we come to him, when we place our faith in him, the Apostle Paul tells us we are united to him. This idea of union with Christ that many of you have heard me talk about. And what that means is that what we're given is not some kind of separate exchange where Jesus is here and we're here and then we're trading bags one to another, right? Like he gets my bad bag, I get my good bag. No, we're brought together. I'm united to him so that what is true of him becomes true of me. His death for sin becomes my death for sin. His perfect, his spotless life before God. I'm united to that. It's now mine too. It's beautiful. Which means that we don't have to pretend that our failures aren't failures. If they weren't, Jesus didn't have to die for them. God's mercy in Christ is greater than our sin, right? So the core, the core of repentance is hatred of sin an apprehension of God's mercy in Jesus. Those are the attitudes from which repentance springs. But what about the components, right? How do we repent? Those are the, those are the, the core things, which I should, I, I should say, the core is something that you and I can't just come up with. It's a gift of God. And we praise God for it when he gives it. And we ask for it when we don't have it. But what about the components? How do we do it? And this isn't a straightforward question. Because some of us think confession is repentance. But confession isn't repentance. It's confession. Repentance is nothing less than confession. But it's way more. Just saying I did this doesn't mean you repented of it. It just says you tell, told the truth. Good for you. And now the next. Right? So the first thing that repentance does require is admission, confession, honesty about what we've done. When it comes to God, what that means is being willing to come to God and say that I am a sinner down to the core of my being. It's not just something I do, it's something that I am. And I have no hope outside of your mercy. When it comes to others, listen close, it means coming to them and saying, this is what I did. And there's no excuse for it. Hmm. I cannot make you do anything. The devil made me do it. This made me do it. This made me do it. No, no excuse. There's no excuse. Are there mitigating factors? That might be a judge of the level of malice? Yeah. But no excuse. Along with honesty needs to come grief. And by that, by that I mean that repentance requires that we are actually grieved by the damage that we've done, not by the fact that we got caught. Right? The passage that Rebecca read in uh, Paul's letter to the Corinthians this morning talks about the difference between worldly grief or sorrow, depending on your translation, and godly grief or sorrow. And the difference is this. Worldly grief happens when we get caught. We're not upset by what we did so much as the fact that we got caught doing it. It's, but godly grief is actually grieving the fact of what we did. 
What we want to do is we want to ignore the damage. We want to quickly move past it. Maybe even refuse to hear it. And that's that's partly because we're afraid of punishment. What's going to happen to me if I admit this? I'm just going to move past it. I'm not going to grieve it. I'm not going to do anything. But part of repentance, friends, is seeing that when we betray another person, we actually do deserve the pound of flesh they want. We deserve it. It's what we deserve. Spiritually, it's admitting to God that he would be right to judge us. He would be. With others, it's often being willing to hear the ways that our actions have wounded them without explanation, excuse, or shaming yourself. If that that person is willing to share their heart and how you've wounded them with you, that is a gift. It is not meant to make you pay. Because you don't deserve that gift. Grief. So admission, grief. Next is renunciation. That's a churchy word, right? There's the old prayer books uh, of, of you know, the medieval and Reformation era churches when, when people are being baptized. One of the questions is, do you renounce the devil and all his works? I think it's awesome. Uh, we don't do that, but I think it's awesome. right? Uh, what renunciation is is turning away from sin. And that, for us, is the hardest. We can confess. Maybe we even can do the grief thing. Because we love someone, we don't want to see them hurt. We we might grieve over the fact that we've hurt them. But to renounce is to turn away from what we've done and walk in a different direction. And most of us struggle with that because in the back of our minds, what we really want is we want the option Maybe I can just have the option of doing that again. And maybe next time I won't get caught. Maybe I can do it good enough that I won't get caught. So if you're repenting of greed, renunciation is generosity. If you're repenting of workaholism, it's setting boundaries with work and then resting If you're repenting of pornography, it's doing whatever it takes. Maybe even getting rid of your devices, if you have to, to stop looking at it. Now, some of you, as I say this, are thinking, Rick, isn't that trying to make things up to people? Or in its more uh, spiritual form, isn't that works-based religion? Blah, blah, blah. It could be. Renunciation ultimately is a matter of the heart. It's ultimately a matter of the heart. Repentance is turning away from sin. And you cannot turn away from sin unless you're turning towards Jesus. And obedience then becomes part of that faith. Does my generosity atone for my greed? No. But if you're saying, Jesus, I'm leaving that behind and turning towards you, then what it looks like is, and thus I'm going to follow you in generosity. I'm willing to follow you. I'm willing, in fact, to do whatever it takes to follow you. It isn't what makes us right with God, but it comes because repentance, even imperfectly, is turning away from sin towards Jesus. So it's, it's admission, honesty, confession. You can call it confession if you want. That's helpful. Grief, renunciation, and then lastly, it is simply trusting the good heart of another. That's where forgiveness, asking for forgiveness, comes into play. Remember what I said earlier? We blame shift when we believe that the guilt of our betrayal is more than the love of the one we've betrayed. 
Repentance is laying ourselves at the feet of the person we've betrayed and trusting their heart. I broke relationship with you and I have no excuse, but if you'll have me, I want to come back. And you walk away. You back off. Like, and there's nothing I can do. You have to trust in their heart to receive you. Which means that you will never be able to repent to God so long as you believe that his love for you is conditioned on your work for him. Ever. You will never be able to truly repent to God if you believe that your love or his love for you is conditioned on your work for him. Because every time you blow it, you think the love meter goes down. I can't admit that. I'll just uh, pretend it didn't happen and work really hard to do it better. Or, or if you, if you not that, then, it's, then I'll beat myself up because then he won't have to and he'll see how sorry I am and the love meter will go back up. Right? You'll never be able to repent to others so long as you believe that you are tolerated for what you do instead of love for who you are. But listen, the gospel tells us that long before we loved God, long before Christ died for us, while we were enemies, Christ died for us. That's why Galatians 2.20 is one of my favorite verses. When Paul says, the life I live, I live now by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That the order is so important. He didn't give himself for me so that God could love me. That God loved me and so had to make things right. Things I messed up. Things I blew. Not him. He's faultless. Which means you don't have to hide Or blame shift. Because God has already proved his good heart for you. He's done it in the cross. He's done it in the resurrection. And the fact that Jesus has died for you frees you to be able to own your betrayals of others. Because Jesus' love for you then becomes a model of how you can be received. But if you're not, the love of Jesus also tells you that it's okay. Because the God of all the universe has forgiven you. And so you can own your failures to others without regard for how you're going to be received. Because friends, you are a sinner and so am I. But in Jesus, we are deeply loved. And so we don't need to pretend. And that, I think, is unexpected. Would you pray with me? Lord, we don't do repentance well. Not a single one of us. On our best day, some of us will do it okay. (laughs) But to be able to own what we've done before you, before others, without excuse, without mitigation, just owning it and grieving it, renouncing it, trusting in their heart, in your heart, we don't do that well. The root of it, Lord, is because we are afraid that our betrayals are stronger and greater than the love of the one that we've betrayed. But, Lord, you have shown us on the cross that that is not the case. And so every time we, are, we struggle to cover over our failures, to not bring them to you, to not bring them to others, show us the cross of Jesus so that we might remember 
your love for us. That your heart is greater than our sin. That the work of Christ is greater than our sin. That we cannot out his cross. And Lord, as we do that, would you create a beautiful community that is willing to forgive and to be forgiven. So the world might see the great gospel that frees us to do that. We ask in Jesus' name.